Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back. Uh, we're back, Martin. We're going to be ta- back talking the economy. We're going to be ta- back talking taxation, just transition, all of those things that we are so passionate about across the Tortoise Shack. But I do want to point to listeners uh, to a couple of things that have been happening in the world. Spoke to people in Gaza in the last few minutes. It appears there are escalations and tensions starting to rise there. We will We will cover them. If we have to, we hope that we don't have to. We hope that it maybe it is it is just posturing, but nonetheless, it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, there's a lot to be watching, and it's very it's very difficult to keep. Uh, uh, it's like putting a finger in the wind, and it's blowing from all directions nowadays, Martin. It's very you bloody know, hard. As, as we were just saying, it the world is in a grim place, Tony. It's just in a grim place. Yeah. Well, look, we'll we'll try not be so grim uh, on uh, what is a nice sunny afternoon. Uh, in Dublin, anyway. Listen, we are thrilled to be joined by uh, Professor Richard Murphy, who is an economic justice campaigner. Uh, he's a chartered accountant, a political economist, and one of the co-founders in the Green New Deal. He's also a wonderful follow on social media at Richard J. Murphy, and you will get all his threads there where he compiles them into his list on taxresearch.org.uk. Really fascinating stuff. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Pleased to join you. Delighted to. No, it's 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 fantastic, and look, we really appreciate it. But unfortunately, we are in a in a grim space, and we are looking at some of the things that have been happening globally. And I I had a conversation earlier in the week. We spoke about how sometimes what's good is bad, and we saw the Fed pulling levers that were basically, you know, coming out say, saying out loud that they want to increase uh, unemployment, they want to make things worse for the average worker, they want to do all of these things to manufacture a recession. You now see you yesterday put up two, two or three wonderful threads, and I say wonderful in the term of insightful, but also probably a bit grim about the situation with the Bank of England and the UK economy. Can you just give us, if you don't mind, an over an overview of that, so maybe our listeners will get a sense of what what you think is happening and how how it's going to play out. Look, the UK is in a pretty dire position at present. I mean, let's leave Brexit aside, although that's almost impossible. Uh, we're having higher inflation than most countries in Europe. It's expected to go to 13%. We're seeing pay offers of around 4 to 5%. We're seeing real increase, uh, falls in people's earnings as a consequence. We see the Bank of England pushing up interest rates much faster than Europe is. Uh, in this sense, copying the Fed, who they're terrified of falling behind. We've now got to a bank interest rate of 1.75% in the UK, and the talk is it will go to 3%, which, of course, is low in historic terms. I can remember when it was 15% in the early 1990s. But in the current context of the last two decades, 3% is beyond the imagination of most current mortgage payers. They've never seen anything like this before. They've never even seen an increase in uh, mortgage rates, more than half, half of all people with mortgages in the UK at present. And so we're seeing the onset of a recession. The Bank of England now admitted. I work quite closely with a chap called Danny Blanchflower. Many of you might have heard from him. He used to be on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, a professor in the States now. Um, We work closely together on these issues. We've been saying we're actually heading for a recession for some time. The Bank of England is talking about a doubling of unemployment. Um, They're talking about real wages falling. You know, what else do you want to add to the pile except for the fact that let's be clear about this? And this is one of my major accusations. A lot of this is deliberate. Um, In the UK, at least, I can actually turn around and say the failure of the government to control inflation is very largely deliberate. 
They could have reduced the price of energy. They could have reduced the price of fuel. They could have changed the way in which the price caps on domestic energy charges in the UK work, because at present they're totally biased towards the energy companies and not towards the consumer. And so the energy companies are raking in massive profits in the UK and elsewhere as a consequence, and the consumer is being screwed into the ground. And then we have the Bank of England actually saying, just as the Fed is, we need to create a recession because that's the only way in which we can get inflation out of the system. And they're crying crocodile tears for all those poor, dear 99% of the population who are going to suffer as a result because they are the have-nots, by which I mean they are the people who have not got savings and they're biased in favour of the haves, those who have got saving. And there is this massive disparity, and the Bank of England is deliberately exacerbating it. So inequality is going to rise as well. What else do you want to know that's going badly? Is that is that deliberate ideology? Look, it has to be deliberate ideology. And I'll tell you why it's deliberate ideology, particularly on the bank of, part of the Bank of England, who are, if I am going to be completely honest about this, pretty stupid when it comes to economics at this moment. Um, you know, Andrew Bailey, who's the boss of the Bank of England, is not an economist, first thing to say. His PhD is in history. Uh, second thing to say is he's only ever worked for the Bank of England. And the third thing to say is actually some of his past actions when he was particularly at the uh, Prudential Regulation Authority, which is part of the uh, Bank of England, have not stood up too well to the test of time, shall we say, and have been severely criticised. Um, so this isn't a man who was ever the ideal person for the job. He doesn't seem to have a deep understanding of macroeconomics at all. But he does understand very basic neoliberal ideology. And one of those basic neoliberal ideologies is that democracy is a very dangerous thing which they reinforce by saying the central bank of a country must be independent of its treasury. So we must have the central bank setting interest rates to pursue the policy it wants to uh, uh, pursue with regard to inflation, independent of any other objective that the country might have and independent of the in, of the democratically elected politicians of the country. You couldn't make up a situation where, in fact, economic management was going to be more divided and also more divided against the interests of most people. Bias in favour of banks, biased against people. So this is an ideological stance in favour of capital, bluntly, and against labour, bluntly. Um, now, I'm not a Marxist, but those terms, uh, frankly, just fall off my tongue very happily, uh, very readily, and very appropriately. Um, and I don't have a difficulty with that. And if you want to call me Marxist as a result, I don't care, because quite simply, I can put this into a theoretical framework, but this is an observation of reality. Mm. And then we have to look at the other aspect of this to prove that it's dogma. The only tool the Bank of England has got to control inflation is the interest rate. But the inflation we've got has nothing to do with an excess supply of money sitting in the pockets of the people of the population of the UK right now. Their theory is that people in the UK have so much money that they are pushing up prices because they've got excess spending power, which they're using to increase prices. There's no evidence for that at all. In fact, 20% of all people in the UK are already struggling to pay Bills, literally. Already, it, we, we, I, even on that, even on that, that statistic, and I, 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 I want to interrupt because it's that's the, we call that the you know the destructive element where we've seen people their purchasing power has been destroyed already, and they're they're voting with their wallets. They're going to different. They're they're shopping cheaper. They're changing providers. They're looking around, and now they're doing these things. And yet, 
the Bank of England is choosing to use an instrument that maybe, you know, uh, we, we, we think would have worked when we were reading simple uh, economic texts from the, from the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, onwards. This is, a blunt, this is a blunt instrument that has, bears no reality on the real economy, Richard. Well, it doesn't. I mean, they're trying to take purchasing power out of people's pockets. That's exactly what their policy is meant to do. But the purchasing power isn't already in people's pockets. Many people have no money. We know that credit card borrowing is going up. We know that savings are going down. And remember, 75% of the UK population have no significant savings at all. And 50% have the square root of nothing when it comes to saving. So we know that those are already depleted. And we know that the pawn shops are seeing a rise in their business. Now, that's a really useful indicator, because when the pawn shops are busy, you sure as heck know that your economy is in trouble and they are busy. So what we're seeing is more and more people without spending power. But the government, well, the Bank of England is intent on reducing that spending power still further. And that is simply going to drive people into poverty. This is unsustainable, by the way. You can't have 20% already of the population before the major electricity and gas price rises, which are scheduled for October, come into place. You can't have 20% of people not able to pay their bills and maintain a stable social economy where people aren't frankly going to go out on the streets and riot. I predict they will be. That's what I was going to ask you. And you've said it's unsustainable. And clearly from the outside looking in, it is unsustainable. So what is the end game? What, I mean, is there an exit strategy for the Bank of England in this? Well, because the Bank of England only have one tool, and because actually they think of things very much in a microeconomic sense, as far as I can see, rather than a macroeconomic sense of a system, they only see a singular problem rather than a system problem. Then as far as they're concerned, they say, we're just going to get rid of inflation. That's our job. And that's all we're going to do. And they ignore the knock on spillover consequences of that because they say that's not our problem. That's the government's problem. From their point of view, therefore, they're pursuing a policy which is completely well. I mean, I'm trying to think of a suitable word and it's just bizarre. Victorian. Victorian, um, oppressive, unempathic, whichever you wish to use. Where does it lead to? It leads to a situation where, I mean, I'm not alone in saying we're going to have social rioting. I mean, literally rioting. Martin Lewis, who's you know, sort of got this status as the money savings expert in the UK, the guy you go to to try to save money when you're looking at your electricity bill, he just says there's no way to save money anymore. It's impossible. Yeah, you, you've he, run he, out he, of road. He gave an interview and he said, more or less stop lecturing people about cutting cutting their cloth pretty much is what he said, because they've they've wrote because they are cutting their cloth. It was kind of... And There's no cloth left. There's no seed yeah, left. I, I, like, I know we, are, we, like we, we have it here now with, with obviously the cost of uh, living crisis running out, out, outside of this. And we have obviously in Ireland, we have this huge discrepancy between Ireland's GDP makes us look like we're world beaters, but yeah. our real experience in the lived economy is much more dif- is much different. So it makes... Well, 26% things, uh, of Irish GDP, as we know, is completely made up. Oh, yeah. Uh, but Leprechaun like, but, economics. As Paul Krugman called it. One of the but, few but, things you said of worth, but we will move on from that. Yeah, but I mean, but, but even at that, like we, we, we do turn around and, you know, we look at these figures and we say, well, you know, but if we can, we're talking about using this additional five billion that has come in in exchequer in, in more or less corporation tax receipts, uh, you know, as one off measures to get people over the hump through this crisis. And you're thinking to yourself going, wow, imagine thinking one off, like here's, 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 uh, here's crumbs from the table, folks, rather than infrastructural changes that will help fix this. But nonetheless, I go back to the UK because thankfully, 
the one thing you've been pretty negative so far, but thankfully you've got such a stable and strong government at the moment. <laughs> I near I nearly kept a straight face. Um, <laughs> you didn't. But, <laughs> but but you know your face. I a few weeks ago, I was interviewing John Harris, and uh, we were talking about you know he and he said, you know Boris Johnson was bad, but it could get worse. And I kind of flippantly said, ah, oh, couldn't get worse. And he said, well, you could end up with someone like Liz Truss. And I kind of laughed and said, everybody here said in Ireland, they said, we couldn't be much worse than Boris Johnson, as long as it's not someone like Liz Truss. And lo and behold, here we are now. And things look really bleak in terms of the political direction as well, because they're literally, they're saying the quiet part out loud. They're saying all of the, the Tory practices that want to, you know, Let's double down on Rwanda. Let's uh, look at, you know, let's 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 stop this red wall. This leveling up means nothing now. We need to work at this. You know, all of these crazy things are just politically. It's a toxic environment and it's not getting any better. Well, the best one of this week, and I've been written a, a few columns about this, including um, uh, in the national newspaper in Scotland, for whom I write, because I'm a bit of an independence person uh, when it comes to these issues. So I don't know why. Perhaps it's because I've got an Irish passport that I feel that Scotland might have the right to quit. Uh, I think it's very much for that reason, in fact. But let's move on from there and instead talk about the fact that this week we've had Rishi Sunak talking about the fact that people who vilify the UK might be referred to the anti-terrorism programme. Mad. As I point out, I actually literally question the right of the UK to exist. So you can't get much more off the scale of vilification of the UK than saying, actually, I'm not sure there should be such a thing as the UK. So I'm expecting to be referred for re-education at some time um, <laughs> in, in some convenient little camp. Um, and I actually wrote a thread this week about taking my sons about five years ago. They are were in their mid-teens at the time um, to Dachau, um, which is, of course, uh, in the middle of a suburban area in just outside Munich, where there was, of course, a re-education camp in 1933. We know where we went. We are actually having a government in the UK which is talking about the most, well, if it's not fascist, it's neo-fascist. Um, damn nearly. We're on that road. We're so close to it, where we talk about re-education of the opponents of the government. This is really dangerous. Economically, we have two utterly incoherent presentations from the people who want to be leaders of the Tories. Um, Rishi Sunak only wants to balance the books as if he's still running his mother's pharmacy in Southampton. Um, I never noticed his mother's pharmacy in Southampton when I was a student there. But, you know, I wasn't a regular in the pharmacy at the time. Um, other places, yeah, but the Mucky Duck, that was the pub down the road, but not the pharmacy. Um, and... So he's just got this incoherent time as balance for book economic policy. And Liz Truss is talking about doing tax cuts um, for the rich and for large corporations. Fundamentally, is the way to revive the economy when there is absolutely zero evidence. And I have been around the tax justice field for uh, longer than most people. I co-founded the tax justice with John Christensen 20 years ago. Um, so I've been around this field for a long time and watched it. There's no evidence that tax cuts for large corporations ever fuel growth. And indeed, Rishi Sunak's tax cuts in 2020 haven't delivered growth. They've actually reduced net investment in the UK. So we have utterly incoherent policies being presented. So this is dogma beginning to end from the Bank of England to this government. And we have no indication that they're going to take any real steps. I feel like, and actually I can draw a precise date on this, um, 
in March 2020, I think it was the 12th, it might have been the 11th, Rishi Sunak presented his first budget in the UK. He'd only been Chancellor for a few weeks. COVID was suddenly appearing. And he made all these announcements. So do I put aside 50 billion or something to deal with the COVID crisis? That'll solve the whole thing. Everything's going to be fine. And it was a pathetic range of issues. And I was actually on um, Radio 2, the Jeremy Vine show on the BBC, which is the most listened to programme in the UK, I think, at the time. Uh, and I do the budget commentary for them um, and have done for about 15 years. And I was on with the right winger, um, Mark Littlewood from the Institute of Economic Affairs. And the only thing we agreed on that day, because we never agree on absolutely anything, was that we would be back very soon because they had completely misread the state of the threat to the economy. And it feels like Rishi Sunak is, and well, and Liz Truss are both back there now. They've utterly misread the state of this economy. We are facing calamity because people simply can't pay their bills. It's like we've reached, we're not late stage capitalism anymore. Capitalism is eating itself now. It's literally got to the point where it is making people so poor, they've forgotten that old maxim, which is credited to Henry Ford, but is probably completely untrue, that he had to pay his workers enough to be able to buy his cars. And capitalism has reached the point where it does not people pay, enough, pay people enough to buy the products. And this is when I talk about the difference between macroeconomics and microeconomics. Mm. A microeconomist will say, so what? We've got rid of a person. They're no longer our problem. A macroeconomist says the person's still there. They still need to be housed, fed, watered, have broadband, have access to the world, live, food and everything else. Now, the point is, therefore, we have got a systemic failure now. And capitalism has literally got no answers to as it stands. Instead, they're yelling, screaming and shouting, you're threatening our businesses, but forgetting that they're threatening our population. I've actually written a thread today. Um, and you know, this is Friday and it's uh, the 5th of August that we're recording this. So that's uh, to contextualize it if anybody's looking at this on social media, where I said, actually, the only way I can see out of this mess is for the UK government to now provide or guarantee the provision of universal basic services in the UK. That's that's interesting, Richard. I find what you're saying very interesting in particular that this this notion that there is some sort of trickle down from the corporate sector from the wealthy that's going to lift everybody and yet we know that the opposite is true they they hoard wealth so um it's not going to happen and also the idea of balancing the books which is huge here in ireland it's absolutely the raison d'etre for one of our government parties they can't see that our economy is anything different to a household budget but what we're seeing now in this country because of this impetus is a big rollback on climate action, a massive rollback on climate action. Is the same happening in the UK? Yes. Um, first of all, the same attitude exists here. I mean, we run a household budget or a business budget and it's called a government. Um, it is The difference is even more obvious in the UK than it is in Ireland, because, of course, we do have our own currency and Ireland shares its currency. But I don't actually think that's such a big difference as many people wish to point out. I think that there's sufficient control of the euro inside most Irish, inside most European economies that, frankly, this doesn't make a bit of difference. Now, I should put hands on the table here. I'm sort of a proponent of modern monetary theory. Uh, and I've contributed to the development of that theory um, with the likes of Randy Ray. And I know Stephanie Kelton quite well. We haven't spoken since yesterday. Um, so, you know, I get on with these people quite well. 
Um, and I understand the stuff. I happen to think that tax plays a bigger role in modern monetary theory than they do. And I'm sort of engaged in writing a book called Modern Taxation Theory as a result. So I'm a deep theorist around these things. But the reality is that yeah, this fixation with actually cutting debt, balancing books and so on, is completely absurd. And I'll give you a historical context for that. Now, it's not an Irish literary source I'm going to quote, I'm afraid. I'm, you know, um, there's quite a lot of economics in Ulysses, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to Jane Austen. And actually, if you go uh, right back to um, Emma, um, Jane Austen's mother had the character who was the mother-in-law who was a- or the mother who was able to predict the worth of suitors for her daughters because of the value of government bonds that they owned. I'm going to interrupt your podcast here for a moment just to remind you that the tortoise shack is more than just a podcast. We do more here than podcasting. We do activism. We also talk to voices that you've never heard before. We bring them to you. Lots of these people go on then to do further interviews with other media, but we're first to break them through to you. We do podcasts with a wide variety of people and we have a wide variety of diverse podcasts. So please, when you're finished listening to this podcast, go and have a listen to one of the others. All of them are excellent. All of them are diverse. This platform survives on contributions. Contributions also help us to spread this platform to the people who need to hear it most. Those are the people who generally can't afford to pay a subscription to a podcast. But if you are listening to this and you can, please pay it forward. Make sure that you make this and keep this podcast available to everybody. Thanks for listening to this message and let you go back to your podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Now, the fact was that back in 1802, five or whenever Jane Austen was writing this, what people realised was that government debt was private wealth. And when the government created bonds, they actually created private wealth or the opportunity for private savings in the most secure, safe place there was. And the consequence was new money supply. And that new money supply stimulated the economy. They couldn't have explained that in that way then. They didn't understand the multiplier effects of doing that then. But the reality is that that's what literally governments pumping money into the economy does. It's the way in which you create A, new employment, B, new investment, C, you change society for the better. And D, you create private wealth as a result because the government pumps wealth into the economy and doesn't take it all back by way of taxation. Simple, straightforward fact. That's how you get more debt. That's all it is. It's untaxed wealth as yet. The option to tax it in the future exists, but it hasn't been done yet. Now, the fact is that we could be doing much more to make a green transition in the UK if only that was understood. But right now, in the UK, the amount of effort going into green is tiny, and I suspect it's true as well in Ireland. And very largely, it's because of this obsession about the fact that they must not do anything which unbalances the books. Now, my argument, let me just present you with an argument how I'd fund the Green New Deal in the UK. I like to link bits of the economy together in my thinking. That's what I'm, I think I'm probably particularly good at, seeing one bit and saying what's the consequence for another. And I look at the tax reliefs that are available in the UK for savings, savings which are, of course, owned by the wealthy. And we give a ridiculous value of tax reliefs in the UK to savings, £60 billion a year 
we spend on subsidizing the savings of the wealthy. Most of that going to pension funds, but some going to other things like individual savings accounts, cash accounts, basically, which the government subsidizes by making them tax free. And we give away that much tax to subsidize this stuff. Suppose you just said you can have that subsidy, but the money you save must go into green investment. Hmm. I could literally, as a result, find over 100 billion a year in the UK to fund the green transition that we need. We can't spend more than 100 billion a year in the UK on the green transition. We literally haven't got enough work and workers to actually spend more than that on the programs we need of insulation, of new types of energy production, of tra- changing transport systems. You know all the stuff we need to do yeah. street by street, you know, literally from the bottom upwards and b- making long term secure unionized jobs with proper apprenticeship schemes for the people of this country. Just by changing the way we direct savings using tax relief and over 80% of all savings in the UK economy, I've done the research to prove this, are tax incentivized. They go into tax incentivized accounts. So I could redirect all the money that's required, but that money would then show up as government borrowing because it would be in a government-based saving account. We can't do that, even though it's private money that's being used for this purpose, and not a single penny of tax is required to make the change. I find this so deeply, fundamentally frustrating that we cannot transform the world using the power of the resources we've already got, because how dare we do anything as a state? And this, you asked me earlier, is this dogma? Look, of course it's dogma. The whole basis of neoliberalism is we, the government, can do nothing as well as you, the market. Therefore, whatever needs doing must be done by you because we will do it worse. Therefore, over to you guys. Oh, you don't want to do it? Oh, well, it can't be worth doing then. But we know that's not the way it's going to work when it comes to green issues. We know that's not the way the world was transformed in the 19th century, an era which I studied quite a lot about. That wasn't how the railways were built. That wasn't how sewers were built. That wasn't how early power was built. That wasn't how the tramways of Dublin were built. And I know something about the tramways of Dublin. I know something about the railways of Ireland. Yeah, all of those things were built in the 19th century, a lot of them with actual local authority involvement, which is why I mentioned tramways deliberately, and also the power stations. But none of that stuff, that local engagement in the economy by using the power of saving to deliver transformational policy, none of that exists. And I find that deeply frustrating. And uh, again, to to bring that back to, uh, I suppose, like within the, within the EU, we see this, you know, the new the new mechanism to keep uh, Italy on board, whereby we're doing this uh, this trick of, I think it was called creative creative writing, creative accounting. Um, <laughs> but, I like but, creative but, accounting. I'm a professor of creative accounting. Uh, but but well, here this is my point. Like we we we've been told we spent a decade being told that we have to Ireland can't do anything because we have to adhere to the debt to GDP rules. So we we were told this for for a decade. This is why we can't build a home. This is why we can't improve our schools or hospitals. This is why the roads are turning to shit and we need, you know, all of these investments we're going to, we, we have to cut back on. Now we actually are, are underspending because we're, you know, we're for who luck with the, with the actual corporate corporation tax receipts. And they're saying, yeah, but that won't last forever. So we need to, we need to do this thing. And it's, you know, so, and, and again, I, I think it's a real failing of both um, our Politi- politics and our uh, reporting that we don't say, well, hang on, we heard this for 10 years. Why can't we actually just, even if we just applied the rules now, there'd be an extra couple of billion to spend on green issues right now. There'd be yeah. an easily, you know, we could access that money right now because we're playing within the rules that you said we must not break. Um, so I kind but of, let's I, also be clear. I mean, this is again dogma because 
the reality is that most of the money that needs to be spent on green right now is not immediate spend, it's investment spend. And investment spending tends to have what is called a very high multiplier effect. Now, the first thing to say is if you spend a couple of billion euros on green in Ireland, that a significant proportion of that money would come back immediately in taxes paid because roughly 30% or so, a bit more, would come back immediately in taxes paid by the people who've got the money or where they spend the money. Then there'd be a secondary effect because once those people earn the money who are working on green projects, they spend the money. And then, of course, the next time that money is spent, more people will pay tax and more VAT will be paid and so on. In fact, then when you begin to bring into account the fact that green investment actually cuts imports of fuel, improves the balance of payments, enhances revenues as a consequence, improves economic stability, you begin to get the second tier level of returns. And all these multiplier effects actually mean that this investment in green almost certainly pays for itself. There is actually no demand ever going to be made on a taxpayer to pay for it because the investment actually funds itself. You know, that's how businesses invest money. You know, they don't actually invest money to say to their customers, you've got to pay for my new store. They buy the new store because actually by building it, it will pay for itself by enabling an opportunity. That's how we have to think about the green investment in Ireland. We are enabling an opportunity which will pay for itself. We don't ask the consumer to pay for it. We actually upfront invest to create the opportunity for people to have a better quality of life as a result. And it pays. But that idea just never seems to filter through to Treasury officials. I'm reminded of a, of a line, I can't even remember the movie, build it and they will come. You know, if you build you're, it, you're they just, will it, come. He's, Martin, Martin's quoting a, a sports movie, Field of Dreams. So now Field I'm having dreams, a problem. Now it, I'm having now I'm dreams. having a problem because the man has, doesn't even know what, what what a baseball is. But nonetheless, <laughs> <laughs> but earlier you said neoliberalism is eating itself, and we would we would absolutely agree with you on that. Where does it end? Uh, neoliberalism is eating itself. Is the end of this? Um, a lot of white men in, in 20 years' time standing with their palms up looking at hundreds of millions of people in other parts of the world dying or having to flee and saying, well, we tried. Look, look, it's our duty. People who produce podcasts, people who write, people who bang out Twitter threads to actually come up with a better way of managing an economy. That's what I really spend my life trying to do. We have to imagine something better. The whole world is based upon the stories we tell ourselves. Neoliberalism was a story that we tell ourselves. Um, and no nation on earth knows more about storytelling than Ireland. So it's a good place to start. And I'm not being silly either. It's a brilliant storytelling location. So what we need to tell is about a story. And the fact is that we need a story which involves the different parts of life coming together in a better way. There's nothing wrong with the state, is the first thing to say. The state has a valuable role to play in any economy, in any society. There are things it can do around education, provision of infrastructure, healthcare in many cases that can't be done by a market in any shape or form in the same efficient way as the state can do it. Just as much as the state really cannot make chocolate biscuits, that really is a very important job that I suspect is always going to be undertaken, and I hope is always undertaken by the private sector, because they'll make a better chocolate biscuit than the state can do. But what we have to find is the right combination of what the state can do and what we can do, and understand that we need to pay enough tax to provide for that. When I look at, and I'm going to 
get to the answer to your question now. Where's neoliberalism going? Neoliberalism is still trying to fuel wants that don't really exist. If they did, we wouldn't have the utterly destructive prospect of advertising all around us all the time, persuading us that we have to have this thing that we don't need. I don't need an iPhone 13. I don't need an iPhone 14, but I bet it's in production. I bet the iPhone 15 is already probably being planned. The world can do without it. The world can do without a a car with all the whiz-bangs that are now put in modern cars. We don't need those things except for status, which is the um, economics of Thomas Babelin, Thorsten Babelin, conspicuous consumption. These things are pure waste. We want to instead talk about the way we need need rather than the way at the moment we fuel the entire economy about meeting wants which are unnecessary which are consuming our uh, world as well literally destroying the environment so we need to look at what the needs that we must address are people need better social care better health care better education they need stronger security they need to know they can live in homes they need to know that their children will have jobs and on and on and it's that security that people want but because you can't put a price on it people won't do it the price mechanism which underpins neoliberalism is the fundamental problem we need to trust the ballot box instead of the price mechanism to determine how we will in the future meet the needs of populations neoliberalism neoliberalism can't do it but a proper strong democracy where actually the people are listened to and there's a problem with that in the uk and there's a problem with that in ireland um where those need those interests of people are really listened to is the way we have to go forward it in, indeed it is uh, you know neoliberalism knows the cost of everything but the value of nothing um, absolutely and- Said as if you were an accountant there, Martin. <laughs> oh, God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> can I coming can I, from one, I can say that. <laughs> can I can I ask one sort of final question that we we talk about the macro picture? So we know, you know, globally, say housing financialization is, is a huge issue. It's a huge issue in Ireland, it's a huge issue in the US, it's becoming more problematic, and housing insecurity in in like I would argue, Richard, you might, you might, you might uh, dissuade me, but the UK was facing into a recession pre uh, any war in Ukraine. It was facing into, you know, an under. It was already the, the all the all the signs were there. Inequality has been increasing. Yet, you know, we're told that this this is a, this is a, a consumption driven inflation. That doesn't make sense. It can't it can't be inequality going up and a consumption driven thing. But the macro picture. Um, it seems to me that when I go, when I look at what the ECB and what the Fed are doing, I genuinely think that the markets are betting against them, saying that they're pretty much done chasing inflation in a way that, it, unlike the, the the Bank of England, um, so there does seem to be a a hodgepodge of how it's how they're going to address this uh, issue in, in the three in, the, in those three central banks. I was talking about this with a guy who knows the financial markets better than I do this morning. Uh, the UK has now priced in inflation and interest rates reversing in the middle of 2023. They don't believe that this is the scale of the issue that the Bank of England is making up. Mm. And in fact, that therefore begs the question, why are they making it up to be a bigger issue than it really is? If you look at, and this again is something Danny Blanchard and I have looked at, we actually have data on inflation in the UK, uh, England specifically. Let's be clear about this. It's not the UK. Uh, this is England 
for 810 years from 1210, which is absolutely bloody stupid when you think about it. But the Bank of England created the timeline and it's a zigzag. Um, uh, except for the last hundred years, where it tends to be that we don't get periods of deflation after periods of inflation, we just get periods of very low inflation after periods of high inflation. Before that, inflation always gave rise to deflation. And this is always the case. There's always a reaction. The inflation is followed by a natural deflation because people realize, and this is absolutely true, that there's always fear that underpins inflation. It's fear that's underpinning inflation now. The fear that we won't have petrol, diesel, gas, etc., is what is driving the speculative boom in prices in those products, which is ultimately feeding through to most other stuff. Food is more worrying, by the way, um, because food is genuinely short at the moment, and that's the global warming issue, which is really serious. You know, the potato crop around me at the moment is suffering badly, um, which is, you know, an unknown phenomenon in East Anglia, uh, but where I am. So this is you know, real food shortages are possible, but not petrol, oil and gas. But they're what's driving it. Those prices are going to reverse just as the price of timber has reversed, the price of aluminium and copper has reversed, the price of freight has reversed already. And indeed, the price of petrol in America has been falling for seven weeks. So everything is actually going to sort of reverse. We even face the risk of a period of deflation. But the fact is that we have people in charge of the economy who actually are driving it by dogma, having no clue what they're doing, having no understanding of how a macroeconomy is a system which has to hang together, and having no motivation of thinking about real people within it or the democratic accountability for their ideas. And that's where we're in real trouble. We really need to actually, one, restore democratic accountability, two, as I said again, build those stories which explain how we can build new economies around the integration of needs and wants, state and private, the people who can and can't work, and make narratives that explain how we as a whole can live in community with each other. Because without that, we are in the deepest, deepest proverbial. Doctor, or sorry, Professor Richard Murphy, thank you so much for having this chat. I think that's a good place to leave it. And I can only say a little bit, Riley, at least you have labour there to change uh, <laughs> the ideology. Yeah. And I do say that tongue in cheek. I really yeah, I do. Hope so. <laughs> listen folks i really enjoyed that hope you all got a lot out of it i know we did um the other actually really interesting we will actually have to come back on the food security issue as well because it is it is it is becoming more and more glam we've seen that the issues in the horn of africa we've seen what's happening in terms of grain exports and we've seen some of uh what i would what i call is uh the worst aspects of fortress europe as well developing and we need to be honest about that as well uh i want to thank uh, professor richard murphy first time today uh, and you can as i said follow him on twitter unbelievable threads there a huge resource he puts the all up on his on his blog as well uh, it's 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 great stuff and um we will continue to come and hopefully we won't you won't hear from us today because hopefully nothing else evolves in gaza and i say that crossing all my fingers talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Subscribe now on Patreon.